Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many ways in which you are at work in our lives that we do not even see. Forgive us for being ungrateful. We pray that you would open our eyes, eyes of our hearts, open our minds, grant us your imagination, give us your vision to see you in, in the depth of your love, which we see most explicitly on the cross. Lift our eyes to see your son, Christ. And give us your peace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, we are just now three Sundays away from the beginning of Advent on November 29th. And I will, however, be absent for one of those three Sundays. It's not this Sunday. I'm here this Sunday. But I am taking next week off and will be gone next Sunday, November 15th. Wayne Hardy, the former pastor of the Kirk, formerly known as the Kirk of the Hills, will be here to preach on the 15th. I'm not sure why they dropped of the hills from their name. Perhaps that's something you can ask him while he's here. Maybe Tulsa got rid of their hills. I don't know. You can ask Wayne. Anyway, I'm telling you about my planned absence at the beginning of my sermon this morning. Because my absence on the 15th means that we have only two Sundays to cover the last three chapters of Daniel. And somehow it didn't feel fair to ask Wayne to preach from Daniel 11 of all places. So what we're going to do is, is explore chapters 10 and 11 together this morning and finish Daniel out with an exploration of chapter 12 on November 22nd. On the 15th, you'll get a respite from Daniel. And Wayne will talk about something more interesting and edifying, like Jesus or something. For this morning, though, it is Daniel 10 and 11. And really, it's primarily Daniel 10 that we'll discuss, because Daniel 11 is frankly difficult to read with its blow-by-blow -blow account of the skirmishes and squabbles between the king of the north and the king of the south. And these two kings are, are not new characters being introduced to you for the first time in chapter 11, but are, are rather characters that we've met under different names in chapters 7, 8, and 9. These two kings were two of the four generals who were each given a divided portion of the kingdom of Greece after the premature death of Alexander the Great. The other two generals aren't mentioned in chapter 11 because it was these two generals, the king of the north and the king of the south, who most affected the life of God's people after they returned from exile and were once again living in Palestine. They are called the king of the north and the king of the south, which begs the question, north of what and south of what? And the answer is north and south of Palestine, the land in which God's people were living. The king of the north is the king of the Seleucids, who lived in Syria to the north of Palestine. And the king of the south was, well, the king of the south is Elvis, is it not? There's little debate about that. The king of the south was the king of the Ptolemies. Thank you, Robbie, for laughing. The king of the south was the king of the Ptolemies, who lived in Egypt to the south of Palestine. And in between these two kings lived God's people. They lived at the mercy of these warring Greek generals, one to the north and one to the south. They were caught in a no man's land that was always being invaded and conquered. Chapter 11 tells the story of the perpetual conflict between these two kings until one day, 
Antiochus Epiphanes, a name that should ring a bell to you by now, won the battle between the north and the south and took control of Palestine for good. Antiochus Epiphanes is described in chapter 11 as a, a man who will act as he pleases. He'll exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god. He shall speak horrendous things against the god of gods. He shall go out with great fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many. He was a terrifying figure. And over and over again, in new and imaginative ways in this second half of the book, Daniel is told that Antiochus Epiphanes is coming. He is the future. And the future is fearful. And the only note of consolation regarding Antiochus Epiphanes in the second half of Daniel is the reminder that he's not eternal. He does have an end. The last verse of chapter 11 again offers the reassurance that he shall come to an end with no one to help him. But the end only comes after much suffering for God's people. It's the pattern of God's salvation that death precedes resurrection. Resurrection comes and is coming, but first you must die. And throughout this latter half of the book, Daniel is repeatedly forced to face the prospect of death with each new vision that comes his way. In chapter 10, we can see the emotional toll that it's taking on him. The chapter opens and in verse 2, we're told that Daniel has been in mourning for three weeks. Now, we don't mourn anymore, although a pandemic has forced us to attempt a recovery of that practice. Still, we have no, no framework to understand the intensity with which Daniel was mourning. In advance, the foretold suffering of his people it was anticipatory grief. Daniel ate only plain food, nothing rich, the text says. No salt, no sugar, no butter, no oil. He fasted from meat and wine, and he relaxed his personal hygiene for three weeks so that his outer appearance reflected how he was feeling on the inside. He was weak, and he looked it. In verse 16, he says that because of the vision, such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. I'm shaking. No strength remains in me. No breath is left in me. Life had become almost unbearable to Daniel. The vision, the vision of the future given to him wrecked him. He was undone. He had become unproductive, exhausted, stagnant, and lifeless. And for 21 days, he lived as one nearer to death, to death than to life. And the whole time it appeared to him that God was absent and had left him alone to suffer. But the angel introduced in verse 5 and 6, most likely the angel Gabriel, who we met in chapters 8 and 9, explains the reason for this heavenly silence. God had heard Daniel. He had seen Daniel's miserable state. And in his great compassion, God had even commissioned the angel Gabriel to visit Daniel and encourage him. But as Gabriel explains in verses 12 and 13, there was a little delay. In verse 12, he tells Daniel, From the first day that you set your mind to, to gain understanding, to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Uh, but the prince 
of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia and have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people at the end of, day, at the end of days. And you see, Daniel's down here confused and suffering and wondering whether God even sees him or not. So Gabriel peels back the veil for him in order to let him peek into the heavenly places. Gabriel expands Daniel's vision and imagination so he might know that his feelings of abandonment are a poor measure of God's love for him. Our feelings of abandonment are a poor measure of God's love for us. If only God would give us his vision, we would see that he fights for, fights for us in ways that we do not know and cannot explain. See, for 21 days, God had been fighting for Daniel, but he knew it not. Even sending Michael in as reinforcement in order to free up Gabriel so that he could attend to the fading Daniel and encourage him. Even as he reiterated the suffering that was to come. At first, the arrival of Gabriel was anything but a comfort to Daniel. It's a reality we see throughout scripture that angels bringing words of comfort must always overcome their appearance first. They look like the Terminator, whether they are bringing announcements of God's judgment or glad tidings of good joy. Gabriel was sent to comfort Daniel. But in verses 5 and 6, we see that he appears as a man clothed in linen, which is terrifying with a belt of gold around his waist. His body was like burl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. And it's no wonder that in verse 8, Daniel's strength left him. His complexion grew deathly pale, and he fell face down to the ground. Even after, even after Gabriel reassured Daniel by calling him greatly beloved in verse 11 and telling him not to fear in verse 12, still Daniel hit the deck a second time in verse 15, speechless, pressing his face into the ground before this intimidating being. But observe closely the way in which this messenger of God dealt with this man in mourning overcome by fear and exhaustion. In verse 10, Daniel had turned pale from fear and was lying face down on the ground when a hand touched him, helped him up to his hands and knees. In verse 16, again, Daniel was lying face down on the ground, unable to speak a single word when one in human form touched his lips and opened his mouth to speak. And when Daniel used his restored speech to describe his miserable state, explaining that such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. Again, in verse 18, one in human form touched and strengthened him. A second time in verse 19, this time Daniel was addressed as greatly beloved and told not to fear. You are safe. God's messenger reassured him. Therefore be strong and courageous. It's marvelous the way in which this angel sent by God ministers to Daniel. I mean, it calls to mind the comforting reassurance of God's character in Isaiah 42 when dealing with the weak and overwhelmed. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
His tenderness and affection and compassion are on full display as he lifts the limp Daniel to his feet and whispers to him, you're safe now, you're safe. He wraps his arms around Daniel and holds him tightly. It's the way he deals with all of his children. For this is the character of the God we worship. You are safe now. Those are tremendous words to speak, especially when in just the next chapter, in chapter 11, the angel Gabriel is going to provide a blow-by-blow account of the rise of none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. Of him, Gabriel says that he shall advance against countries and pass through like a flood. He shall come into the beautiful land, into Jerusalem, and tens of thousands shall fall victim. Ah, but to Daniel, he still says, you're safe now. On the surface, these sound like contradictory messages. How can desolation and safety be promised at the same time? It has to be one or the other, doesn't it? Either desolation or safety. But there's no contradiction here. Does not God also promise both fear and safety in that most famous of Psalms, Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. You see, Daniel 10 and Psalm 23 are promising the same thing, safety in the face of danger, security in the presence of fear, strength where there's weakness, endurance despite exhaustion, God promises both, and he tells you to expect both. But because he knows our frailty, because he knows that we, like Daniel, are easily overwhelmed by adversity, he graciously provides us with an even greater reason to be confident of our victory in him and of his love for us. And it's the empty tomb. For in the tomb we see that death itself, the apex of all our fear, the culmination of all our fear has been defeated by Jesus Christ. There's someone greater than death. And he promises to make his victory, the victory of everyone who trusts in him. He'll not keep us from death, just as he did not keep God's people from Antiochus Epiphanes. But he promises that when death has us lying in the dust of the ground, that he'll come to us and he'll touch us. He'll call us his beloved. He'll give us life and hope. He'll set us on our feet again. And with his arms wrapped around us, he'll whisper, you're safe now. I'm here. And until that day when death comes for us, we can be confident that he is fighting for us in the heavenly places. It may seem that he is absent, but there's Gabriel, there's, there's Michael, there's the whole host of heaven restraining evil so that under the greatest burdens of this life, we may yet stand and face the day that God has made for us. Yes, this, this life is exhausting and unpredictable and uncertain and fearful. 
God, but we have the promises of one greater than death and yet tender enough to preserve a smoldering wick. No one and nothing can separate you from him because he's bound himself to you and his spirit lives within you. He'll keep you to the end for he is greater than all your sin and greater than death itself. Therefore, beloved ones, do not be afraid even of the future because Jesus is your future and in him you are safe dining in the presence of enemies strolling through the darkest of valleys in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen